Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. All the glory and honor goes to you. And so when we say thank you, God, we are saying just as another way that every good and perfect gift comes from you, the maker of heaven and earth. And God, it is so good for us to gather weekly and be reminded of that. Yes, one through the songs that we sing, but also through the scripture that we preach and hear preached. God, because it reminds us that not only are you God, but you're good. And the fact that you, in your grace and kindness, have sent Christ, which is what Christmas is all about. God putting on flesh and being born and dwelling among us so that he could die for our sins and be resurrected giving us now victory over death. He can make us alive. God, the fact that you did that is why we glorify you because you are good and you do good. And so God, I pray now as we open up your word that you would show us that. You would help us to see just how immeasurable and unsearchable you are. As always, God, I pray that you would help us to see and submit to this word. We can't do it without the work of your spirit in us. And I ask you to help me to communicate it in a way that honors and glorifies you and is helpful. We thank you now, God, as we open your word, we receive it as your word to us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have a Bible, we're in Ephesians chapter three. We did the first six verses last week talking about this stewardship of the mystery of the plan of God that God has given Paul, which he explains to us is that he is grafting in Gentiles into the family of God. And that's how your Old Testament and New Testament fit together. Not because God somehow messed up, but that was always the plan. It was always the plan. In fact, God said this, and I showed you last week in Genesis chapter 12, through Abram, who he changed his name to Abraham, that through him, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And so God was going to graft in families from all these nations he had just separated. In Genesis 11, he enacts his plan to get those nations back. And so we see this unfolding of the plan of the mystery of God. And Paul told us last week that he was a steward of that, and he was responsible to preach that. And that in and of itself is amazing. But we ended last week talking about how now that we know that, now that we have seen by the Spirit through the Scriptures this stewardship, now we are stewards. We are now responsible. That's why we have, when you join our church, what we call stewardship. We don't call it membership. We call it stewardship because now we are stewards of this mystery of the grace of God. And what we're going to pick up today in verse 7 and 8 first, I want to read that and then talk about it, is how Paul now sees himself as this steward and how it has this profound effect on him. And I am praying it has this same profound effect on us. And so let's go to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 7 and 8. Paul says, of this gospel, this good news, 
I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. Now, a couple of things I wanna point out here. One is that Paul speaks in the past tense and the present tense in the same couple of verses. Not because he doesn't understand how language works, right? But he does that on purpose. And, 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 and whenever you're reading the Bible, you should pay attention to these things. You should see this because it's, again, it's calling attention to something. And primarily what I mean in this text is it's amazing to me how Paul speaks in the past tense when he says, I was made a minister and then I was given by grace this gift. And so three times he uses past tense language. And not only is it past tense, it's passive, which means it's not something Paul did, it's something Paul received. And this past tense idea is what's called the aorist tense, which means like a snapshot event. It's describing something that happened in the past, and it's describing something that happened to Paul, not by Paul. That's important. Again, I'm preach this in Ephesians 1 and 2. It's by grace through faith, and that's a gift. All of that is a gift. But what's incredible to me is not only does Paul say, I was made a minister, which that word minister is literally the Greek word servant. It says, I was made a minister. I was given a gift. This was done by God. And Paul, if you know the story of Paul, he wasn't looking for this. In fact, Paul, whose name was Saul, wasn't looking to serve people. He was looking to crucify people. He was literally on the road to kill people and Jesus meets him and says, why are you persecuting me, Saul? And then makes him a minister, makes him a servant. Which is why I believe then Paul speaks in the present tense when he says, I am the very least of all the saints. Now, Notice he doesn't say the very least of all the apostles. Because this word least can mean last, and that would make sense because Paul was the last apostle. When we say apostle, and I've said this before, theologically what we mean by that is like big A apostle. And big A is opposed to little A, which you'll see in Ephesians 4, which is a gift that God still gives the church. But big A apostle means there's something different between those original 12 apostles than today because they actually saw Jesus. They lived with Jesus, they saw Jesus, and even Paul, who wasn't a believer before the resurrection of Jesus, he was definitely one afterwards. And he saw Jesus. In fact, he was around. So he saw Jesus before he was resurrected, and then he also saw him afterwards. So it would have made sense for Paul to say, I'm the least of all the apostles because I was the last one. He does say elsewhere, I was one untimely born. Meaning like I, I, I missed out on that first part. But notice that Paul says he's the least of all the saints. Now, what are the saints? It's not just that team down in New Orleans, all right? Biblically speaking, the saints are the church. It's Christians. Because when we become a Christian, we are made a saint. Another way to think about that is we are made holy. The righteousness of Christ is accredited to us, right? He takes our sin. He gives us his righteousness. Now, we still are sinners, 
So we're simultaneously holy and sinners until we get the new resurrection body and then sin is completely done away with. But in the sight of God, we are now sons and daughters of God. We now have the righteousness of Christ. And so this concept of a saint is now we're holy before God. But let me ask you a question. If you were gonna make a list of all the Christians that have ever lived and you were like ranking them, would any of you put Paul last on that list? No, where would you put him? Probably first. It's like Jesus, Paul, right? Because Paul wrote more of the New Testament than any other person. I mean, he wrote more than any other person. So us looking at this, we're like, Paul, we wouldn't put you last. But this is what is important to understand. Paul puts himself, and this word least, not just last, it means of low status. Because he understands grace. And what is grace? We've talked a lot about that. I'll give you another element here. I have it here on the screen. Grace is the gift of the working of his power. That's what he said. I was given the grace, the working of his power. Watch this. In undeserving people. Grace is the gift of the working of God's power to make us alive. Right? We were dead in our trespasses and sins. By grace, through faith, we're made alive. And we're made to do good works, Ephesians 2.10, right? So all that's by grace. But this is key. And the reason why I'm highlighting this is because if this is how Paul thought about himself, this is how we should think about ourselves. Paul said, I was made a minister. Now, it's important to understand that was by grace. I was given a gift, which was the working of his power. That was by grace. And grace comes to undeserving people. Think about this. Paul was on his way to kill Christians. And God said, tired of you killing them? Now I want you to make them. And in order to do that, I gotta make you. I gotta make you a servant. And this is what I love. This is what grace is. This is the working of his power. This is the same call that Jesus gave his original 12 disciples as well. If you go back and read in Matthew, when he gives them the invitation, he says, come follow me and I will something, fishers of men, what is it? I will, anybody know? Make. So who does the making there? Come on, that's the church answer. You know this, Jesus. He says, follow me, I will make you. But here's what's key to understand. Paul said he made, he was made a minister. He was made a servant. Here's what we got to understand. He wasn't made a celebrity. He was made a servant. And this is one of the things, and I've been a minister now for over two decades, that blows my mind a lot of times not only from people in my position that have like staff positions at a church, but even people within churches. Because we'll get into this in Ephesians chapter four. You are a minister. If you're a Christian, you're in ministry. Paul says he gave some 
gifts, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, APES, acronym, we'll get into that. But he says, the job of those, the leaders in the church, is to equip the saints for the work of, anybody know? Ministry. So if you were made alive, you were made a minister. All right? It's not a question of if. Like, it's like, if I'm alive, I'm breathing. All right? Here's the key. If you were made alive in Christ, you were made a servant. You were made a servant. And the only appropriate response to that is one of humility. Where you don't elevate yourself, but you lower yourself. See, this least of all has to do with status. Is this not what Jesus told his disciples? When he said, you've heard it said among the Gentiles, those that want to be great, be the Lord's. He says, those of you that want to be great in the kingdom of God will be servants. And then the night that he was going to be betrayed, the night of all nights, he takes out a towel and washes the feet of his disciples. And Peter's like, no, Lord, no. You will never wash my feet. Why? Because if Peter's Lord is a servant, then that means Peter's a servant. You wanna know one of the reasons why Peter resisted it? It wasn't he was resisting it just from the fact that he didn't want Jesus to do it, but he was resisting it because if Jesus did it, that meant Peter had to do it. And then Jesus says, if you don't let me wash you, you have no inheritance. And he's like, don't just wash my feet, wash the whole thing then. Peter was quick to speak, slow to think. Almost always, Peter would say, I feel like this is a good time to talk. And he would insert foot into mouth. Here's why I'm stressing this. If you and I understand grace, then we will understand the only position we can take is one of servant, which is one that comes underneath and lifts up, not one who lords over and talks down. So I say many times, if you are Christian and arrogant, you may not be Christian. Because if Christ was not arrogant, how can you claim the name of Christ in Christian and not be like him? And this is where we gotta understand, man. Sometimes the most arrogant people among us are those who are ministers. And I, listen, I know I'm saying this about myself. But you wanna know what keeps me humble? It's knowing who I am without God. Who I was before God. And knowing that God didn't need me because I was awesome. And God doesn't need you because you're awesome. Because newsflash, you ain't. And this is why when you walk into a room and you wonder if everybody's thinking about you, again, I say this all the time, they're not. You wanna know why? Because they're thinking about themselves. They're not thinking about you. But I can't tell you how many times the moment, the moment a Christian gets this authoritative position, they instantly forget that God called them to be a servant, not a celebrity. 
People want a platform, but they don't want the position down on their knees. But Paul says, that's what he was made. That's what he was given. And that's why he was amazed. Because how in the world could someone take as evil as him and give him an opportunity at the Lord's table? And here's what I'm saying to you, church. You and I should never get over grace. And the moment we start elevating ourselves or having this attitude that somehow I know better or bucking authority of those over us and by thinking, if I was just in charge, this place would be better. Listen, I understand some of you have thought that before. And that's all right. You're a sinner. But we should never live with this mantra that I was made anything other than a servant. And we should serve. Which is why I tell our staff all the time, if you're not willing to lead by cleaning and picking up trash, you don't deserve to stand on this stage. Because being in a position of authority has nothing to do with being better than someone else. It has everything to do with you're just now responsible to serve everybody else. See, there's a difference here. And I love that the Apostle Paul, the one guy that we would put first, he puts himself last. Now he keeps going. Look at this, verse 8 and 9. He was made a servant, a minister, to preach to the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. This is what I think has a humbling effect. Paul was blown away that he was made a minister. He was made a steward of something as amazing as the unsearchable riches of Christ. If you were here in Ephesians 1 and 2, we talked about the immeasurableness of God's grace, how God can't, uh, his grace can't be outmeasured. And I told you the definition of transgress, transgress means to step beyond a boundary that God has made. And so when you step beyond, you can measure that. And if you measure that, what we're saying, what God is saying is you can't outstep his grace, which means your ability to sin can't outmeasure the immeasurableness of God's grace. So God's grace is immeasurable. And I love how Paul, like in keeping in this same thing, now he introduces another dimension of this, which is what humbles him to understand how in the world could God choose someone like Paul to be a minister, a steward of a message like this, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. What a word. And this, this idea of unsearchable is, is not so much the concept of like hide and seek, like you can't find it. It's not that. It's that once you get into the riches of Christ, Christ, you can never get to the end of it. You can't search out where it begins and ends. It just keeps going on. It's infinite. It's eternal. But I love how he says it's the unsearchable riches of Christ. 
riches. And elsewhere, he says God is rich in mercy. The unsearchable riches of Christ. Well, think about this. His unsearchable riches is his immeasurable grace. He has immeasurable grace. You can't measure it. Which is a part of his unsearchable riches. But there's another part of it. It's not just all that Christ gives, which is grace. It's all that Christ is. In fact, let me give you this definition. It's here on the screen. Unsearchable riches is all that Christ gives and all that Christ is. Here's why this is important. It is good and right to talk about God's immeasurable grace. It is good and right to talk about the fact that God's grace is the gift of the working of his power and undeserving people. It is good and right to talk about that. It's just not good and right to stop there and only highlight what God gives and miss who God is. Let me give it to you like this. You know, this is the Christmas season. And Christmas is the concept of a gift was given, right? And Christians have used this holiday, not that we stole it, but it was a pagan holiday that we have now brought meaning to, talking about Jesus is the gift. Jesus is the reason for the season. And then there was this guy named St. Nick who was a real guy who gave gifts. And now we've kind of popularized that and Coca-Cola made up the idea of what we think of Santa Claus, all right? It's this guy that gives gifts, which is a little bit of a weird story because he breaks into everybody's house, but he never goes to jail for it. I mean, it's kind of weird, you know, like, um, but the concept of gifts being given, you know, he gives gifts to good people, but he doesn't to bad people, which isn't grace that's deserving, right? But the problem a lot of times at Christmas time, and those of your parents can understand this, is sometimes you can be loved for the fact that you just give a gift and not just because of who you are. Let me say it like this. Today, more than Santa Claus bringing gifts, we have people like FedEx and UPS and Amazon and sometimes the United States Postal Service too, although they're normally a few days late, all right? Which if you work for them, by the way, I love you. I love you. I, I, get, I mean, I get it, all right? However, I, don't, I got something shipped to me last week from Holly Springs, and it was supposed to go from Holly Springs to Canton, and somehow it went to Peachtree City for like three days. I don't understand it, all right? I'm just saying. That just seems out of the way to me, all right? But whatever, all right? But think about it like this. When your delivery driver comes to your house, and they drop off a gift, and you receive that gift with glad tidings, right? You're happy. Most often, I mean, you might say thank you, but the next thing you do is just shut the door in their face. Thank you for the gift. Why? Because you don't care about the giver. You don't care about the deliverer. You care about the gift. And what can happen a lot of times is we can treat God like that. We treat God like he's a divine delivery driver bringing us gifts and we receive the gift and they're good. But we say thank you for the gift and it never rolls up one level where we worship him because he's a giver, right? You see what I'm saying? 
So the unsearchable riches of Christ is not just simply all that he gives, although he does give good gifts. In fact, Jesus even says, if you as sinful people know how to give good gifts to your kids, don't you think your father knows how to give good gifts to you? Like you only got that idea from God. But here's what I want you to see. If his grace is um, um, immeasurable, how much more unsearchable is he? Like if the gifts he gives are endless, because his grace is endless, how much more so is he? And this is how we should think about God. In fact, look at what Paul says in Romans eleven thirty three. 33. I love this. And I love it because it starts with the word, oh. Oh. And sometimes you may wonder why in modern songs they just put in the word, oh. And we're like, I'm just singing, oh. Right? Sometimes that's all that makes sense. Because you get to the end of human language. It's like Romans 8 where Paul says, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with the Father with groans that are too deep for words. Sometimes all you got is a groan, right? Oh! And sometimes that's the best, most theologically right thing you can say to God because you got nothing else to say because human language is failing you because you're talking about a divine being. But look at what he says here. I want you to see this. Look, oh! The depth, unsearchable, the depth of the riches and wisdom. We'll talk about that in a second because Paul's gonna mention Ephesians 3 and knowledge of God. How, here's our word. What's the next word there? Unsearchable. Let's try that again. Come on, Jasper. Unsearchable. But here's why I love Paul. He also adds another one. He says, unsearchable all his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. I'm gonna go out on a limb and probably guess you didn't use that word inscrutable this week. I was talking to one of our worship leaders just a second ago and she said that she did use that word this week because somebody in her family was at a spelling bee and that was the word. That might be the only reason why you would use it. But here's what's amazing about this word. Unsearchable means that you can't find it out. But here's what inscrutable means. It, it, literally, it's the idea that you can't trace it. You can't trace it. It's too much. You remember those like pieces of paper we used to get sometimes where it have all these dots and you have to connect the dots, right? Remember that? And then as you're connecting the dots, it shows this picture, reveals this picture to you. Well, the idea of God being inscrutable is that there's so many dots, you can't even connect them all. You can't even, I mean, you spend all eternity trying to connect dots. Oh, I had no idea that God's picture was like this. Which by the way, this is one reason why heaven will not be boring, y'all. But the idea of us, and I get it if you're younger, but as you get older, heaven should sound more sweeter to you because the idea that we're just gonna be floating up on the skies playing a harp like we see sometimes, like that doesn't sound fun. That ain't what you're gonna be doing. Number one, it ain't gonna be up there. It's gonna be here. It's gonna be a new heaven, new earth when God brings it. But you wanna know what we're gonna do for all eternity? We're gonna be trying to search out the insearchableness of God. We're gonna try to trace out the inscrutableness of God and you won't be able to and you'll never be bored with it. Because it's going to go on and on and on. And, and think about it. I mean, think about the stories that we love now. 
The stories that we love when we hear how God worked in somebody's life in a way that makes no sense other than God was involved because you had prayed for something and you needed something and you showed up at this place and this person was like, I knew you were coming or God told me this. And you're like, how did you know that? I didn't know that because I knew that. I knew that because the spirit of God told me that when I showed up and you showed up and then this happened and then the dots were connected. That's gonna happen for all eternity. For all eternity, God is gonna be connecting the dots of the things that you didn't know that happened in other people's life because you weren't part of their family and you weren't in their text thread and you didn't know that story. You see what I'm saying? You think that's gonna be boring? No. And this is what I love about Paul. Paul can't get over the fact that he was included in that. I was made a minister to serve people to connect God's dots in their life. And I can't get over that. I don't want to get over that. This is what I was saying earlier. Arrogance and bitterness starts creeping into your life because you have forgotten the fact of this mystery that God didn't need you, but God wanted you and he made you a servant. This is why I'll never get over it, y'all. And I've told you this many times. The moment I get over this, I will quit preaching. I will quit. I will quit because I never want to get up here and act like somehow I deserve to be up here. Who in the world am I that God lets me be a part of connecting dots for you? Oh, the unsearchable riches of his grace. Let's look at verse 10. I love this. Don't miss this. Paul's now gonna shift from what God did in him to now what he wants to do in us or through us. Look at this. Everything that God did in Paul is for this reason. Verse 10. So that, so that through the church, that's us, men and women, people of God, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, I gotta be straight with y'all. This trips me out. If y'all been around here, you know I like prepositions. There's two important ones here. It's through and to. Through the church, God is making known a mystery to the rulers and authorities. This is what trusts me out. In the heavenly places. What? Let's take these two things. First, he says that through the church, the manifold wisdom is being known, made known. What is that? You guys know I love words. This word manifold, it sounds like, I mean, it's not just something that it's on your car, by the way, but the word manifold, again, it sounds like a, a big word, but it's really a lot more simple than you think. In fact, here's the definition of, I got it here on the screen. Manifold literally means many folds or sides. I don't know why we put an I in there instead of a Y, all right? But that's literally, I mean, literally, think about it. It's not manifold, it's many folds, right? See it? Many folds or many sides. 
Think about it like this, multi. A diamond is multifaceted. There's many sides to it, right? But here's what he's saying. There are many sides to the wisdom of God. And through the church, he's making known the many sides. Here's what amazes me. This word here, manifold, can also mean many colors. It's the idea of a lot of colors on a sweater. Let me take it a step further. It's also the idea of not just many colors like in this, but many colors as it relates to humans. Multi-ethnic or multi-colored. This is Paul saying that his grace isn't one-colored or one-sided. It's many-sided. It's many-colored. It's many nations. It's not just one. It's never just the Jewish people. And here's what's also cool to me. Think about this word manifold. It's the idea that God has been unfolding these many folds throughout human history. He's unfolding. I mean, you think about something that's unfolded, right? Like you get a packet of sheets, you unfold it. And some of you are so type A, you gotta like steam it so there's not folds in it anymore to put it on your bed, even though it's gonna be wrinkled and have a lot more folds than what you just steamed out, but whatever, I'm cool, all right? You unfold something, you're making known how big something is that was folded in. Let me give it to you like this. I got this piece of paper here. I wanna show you something. Right now, you have no idea how big this paper is. Because is this paper this big? This is when you're like, this is a trick question. Right now, yes, it is this big. But also, when I unfold it and it's bigger, that bigness is already in his. It's just folded. You with me? And what God is doing through the church is he's making known the many-folded plan. He's unfolding it. And this has gone back all the way to the beginning of time. Here's what I mean. This right here, I can't do every fold, but I'm gonna try to describe to you, if you will, the trajectory of the Bible, Old and New Testament. This is why we can't detach ourselves from the old because this is where it starts. So imagine this. This is when God made Adam and Eve, right? It's all we could see. Which this is what's amazing. Everything that you need to make a full human is in the seed, right? So it's as if God had this whole human history plan that he folded up and then he made mankind and ever since then he's been unfolding it. So it went from Adam and Eve and you know the story, they sinned but he promised the seed and then that came through Abram 
which I told you last week, if you were here, Genesis 11, God makes all the nations. Genesis 12, he chooses one guy from one of those evil nations who can't have kids to make a kid so that we can know it's a miraculous thing, just like Jesus was born miraculously, so that God could bring back the family from all those nations that he just split. Which is why at Pentecost, you see the translation of the word of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. People are hearing in their own language. Pentecost is a reversal of the Tower of Babel. All that was in this plan. You just couldn't see it yet because it wasn't unfolded. So through Abram, he has a kid named Isaac. Not the kid naturally, Ishmael, but supernaturally, Isaac. And then in Isaac, he has a son named Jacob that then God later changes his name to Israel. So now we're getting a little bit bigger picture of this unfolding mystery of the plan of God. And Isaac has 12 sons. Those 12 sons become the 12 tribes. And then when they are freed from the promised land and they go into the, uh, freed from, sorry, Egypt, and they go into the promised land, then those 12 tribes, 12 sons become 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. And from one of those tribes came a son named Jesus. So then it starts unfolding a little bit more. And here's what Paul's saying. What's amazing to Paul is that Jesus chose Paul to make this plan made known. And now through the church, it's being made known as the manifold plan of God. But don't miss this. Every line, every fold in this manifold, many-fold wisdom is a person. And that person was a part of the plan for Christ to be preached to the nations. That's the many folded sides of the wisdom of God. And here's what I'm saying to you. God has given this to you now. He's given this, this many folded, many sided plan to us. We are now stewards of this. And watch this. What's our job? It's to keep unfolding it. And what does that mean? What it means is God has many more sides to unfold, many more people to bring in. This is what's cool to me, bring into the fold. Catch that? That's not because I'm so witty, y'all. That's a revelation by the Spirit of God. Into the fold. What is a fold? It's a family. So here's what that means. God has entrusted you and me to bring in many people from all nations that he wants into his family, into his fold. And he's doing that through the church. But here's where it gets even cooler to me. He's making that plan known through the church, but to who? To the rulers and authorities, not from an earthly perspective. Not to the rulers of the nations on earth. This is why Paul's gonna get into 
chapter six of Ephesians, your fight is not flesh and blood, y'all. It's with the principalities and rulers, the prince of the power of the air. Here's how I think we should think about this. I'm gonna try to put a couple things together for you. Again, you may not agree, it's okay. But there's this place in Corinthians where Paul, he says, I know a man that was caught up to the third heaven. What's interesting is Paul was talking about himself. <laughs> and you read that and people are like, what the heck is the third heaven? Especially if you came from like a Mormon background, they, they wig out on that stuff. Although that's a completely different thing than Christianity. But here's the simplest way to think about it. Here's how most theologians think about it. We have earth, right? And the first heaven is the sky that we can see. All right, just think of the sky. That would be the first heaven. And then the second heaven is beyond that. And a lot of times we think of that as like the galaxies. But then the third heaven is where God resides. So it's not like there's three levels of where God resides. It's that he's in the third one. Because the first one is just the sky. But here's what's crazy to me. The second heaven is pictured as that's where Satan and his rulers are. They are ruling. That's why he's called the prince of the power of the air. The rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This text is not referring to rulers and authorities that are on the good team. They're on the hostile team. And that's what the Bible kind of pictures as the second heaven. But here's what's amazing. God is above that because he's in the third heaven. And Paul said in Ephesians 1 that when we were made new in Christ, we were seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Here's how you can think about it. You were seated with Christ in the third heaven. But now what is God doing with you? Through the church, he's now making known to the rulers and authorities in the second heaven that God through the church is taking people out of the second heaven and placing them into the third heaven. He's taking people out from the realm of Satan and he's bringing them into the kingdom of God. And here's how, why I think that. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They say, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah. And then he says, who do you say I am? And Peter speaks up. It's probably the first time ever that Peter says anything that's worth repeating. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. This was revealed to you from my father. And I tell you, that's the truth. And on that rock, not Peter, Peter ain't the rock. That statement's the rock. And on that rock, I'm gonna build my church my church, and the what of hell can't stop it? Gates. Now, let me ask you a question. Are gates an offensive weapon or a defensive weapon? Defensive. No one says, let me go get my gate to fight you. Right? It's, let me go get my sword or let me go get my gun. Gates are defensive. 
So it's like the devil set up gates around the prison of which he has the people of God who are enslaved to sin. But now Jesus said to Peter in Matthew 16, I'm gonna give you the keys once I resurrect. And here's what that key is going to unlock. It is going to unlock the gate that the devil has and you're gonna take out the people that he has enslaved and you're gonna bring them into my family. And the devil can't do a thing about it. The devil can't stop. That's why he says you're making known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Hey, I want my people back and you can't stop the church. Nobody on earth, nobody in the first heaven, nobody in the second heaven can stop the church. This is why it bugs me when people rag on the church. Number one, it's the bride of Christ. Number two, it is through the church that God is making known the manifold wisdom. So how about we stop criticizing and we start joining, getting people out of the gates of hell into the kingdom of heaven. And this is what I love. This is what I love. Imagine what it's like. Imagine what it's like for the devil and his demons when they can't stop the church from taking people. The devil's like, another one? You just took another one? You just took Saul? Saul was my best guy. You took him and you made him a pastor and a <laughs> You know Satan thought he won when he killed Jesus, right? So here's what it says, and you'll get into this in Ephesians 4 too. When Jesus died, he went behind the gate. Jesus said, I took the keys of the one who had the power over death, and I unlocked it from the inside. And now you and I, through the church, are preaching the manifold wisdom of that message. And the devil can't stop it. <laughs> Think about it like this, and I love this, and I'm not trying to be sacrilegious, but it's like the only song that plays in the second heaven is the one from DJ Khaled. Another one, another one, another one. And if you're not under 30, you have no idea what I'm talking about, all right? But here's the idea. God has taken back another one, another one, another one, another one, another one, another one, and the devil is losing over and over and over and over again. He can do nothing to stop it. So what does that do for us? Here's what I'm saying. Number one, it humbles us, and then two, it encourages us to be like, why in the world, how in the world did you save me? And now you gave, here's the thing, God frees you from prison and then sends you right back with the keys to free others from prison. And then they send him right back with the keys. Imagine the devil. This is why we have to say when we show up, I, not just I'm here, and this is how some of you show up to serve, I'm here. No, we didn't need you here anyway. God didn't need you here. So it's not you showing up and saying I'm here, it's you saying I'm here in the name of Jesus because it's only at the name of Jesus that every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess on earth and under the earth. Jesus is the name by which we unlock, which is why Paul says this next. Look at verse 11 and 12. This is why I get so excited, yo. This, this, what? What's this? 
The manifold with this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. This manifold wisdom of God. Look at this in verse 12. In whom we, the church, have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. We have boldness walking into the devil's territory because we have access to the third heaven, to the unsearchable riches of Christ. We have boldness because we have access. This is why verse 13, he says, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Last point, and this might be the, la the longest point in the history of points, okay? But I, I just, <laughs> it, it's like I'm trying to stuff in the entire plan of God into a point, you know? but I did get it on one slide. Here we go, last point. When we, the church, understand the access we have to Christ's unsearchable riches, when we understand that, watch this, then we won't stay discouraged. Notice I didn't say we won't get discouraged. Oh, Christians get discouraged. Christians get depressed. Christians get angry. Angry and anxious. I think that I was trying to make up two words there, all right? But they don't stay there. It's okay to go there. It's just not okay to stay there. Why? Because you have access to his unsearchable riches. His grace is sufficient for your weakness. So you don't stay discouraged, but watch this, watch this, watch this. But we will boldly make known God's manifold wisdom through the church. Through the church, through the people of God. There's no better thing going on the planet than the church. To the heavenly rulers and authorities. When you and I understand the access we have to those unsearchable riches, we won't stay discouraged, but we will boldly make known this many-folded wisdom of the purpose and plan of God through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. My friends, that's a stewardship. That's what we as Revolution Church are stewarding. That's why we want to plant more churches because every time we plant a church in another city, we are kicking down the gates in that city. Every time we mobilize people to live life on mission, we are sending out our warriors to go behind those gates and free those people. That's what we're doing. And that's what you're a part of. So number one, don't get it twisted that God needs you and become arrogant. But be humbled by the fact that he wanted you. And he's entrusted you with this. And then, let's be good stewards of this wisdom. And let's tell many sides, many colors, many nations, many ethnicities, 
God's family is multicolored, y'all. It's multinational. It's multi-generational. And that's our message. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that, number one, you're so unbelievably smart. You're, you're so wise to determine the end before the beginning. You folded out all of human history and your purpose and plan before the foundation of the world. And then you folded it up and you made Adam and Eve. And ever since then, you've been unfolding another side to it, another fold in it. And now, God, you've entrusted the church with this message that you want us to unfold by preaching this gospel to people that are still in chains that says in Christ now they're free, they're alive. And so God, I pray that you would help us first and foremost to understand that it's only by grace that we get in. Because all of us are sinners. It's by grace through faith and this is the gift. So God, I pray right now for anybody in this place or watching or listening that has never heard this good news of this grace that God wants them folded into his family. I pray right now you'd open their eyes and they would see, believe, and be saved. Nobody looking around or talking here as we close. If you're here today and you think there's no way God could save someone like you, I'm here to tell you, if he can save Paul, he can save all y'all. And if that's you, and by grace God is opening your eyes and you wanna respond in faith and be saved, you can pray with me. You don't have to do it out loud because ultimately it's between you and God. And it goes like this. Say, Father, thank you for loving me. That you sent your son in my place, Jesus, for my sin, to save me, free me, and make me a part of your family. So in faith, I'm trusting him to save me. Please forgive me. Thank you for loving me. Again, nobody looking around or talking, but if you're here today and you're in one of our physical locations, and you just prayed with me to trust Christ. Would you please just let us know by lifting up your hand? We got men and women that are here gonna put a gift in your hand and when they do, you can put it down. You're now a part of the family. You're now a part of the fold. You're one of the creases God just made in his unfolding plan. Then, for those of us that are saved, I pray that we would understand that God has made us a servant, not a celebrity. And maybe some of you need to repent of your arrogance, thinking that somehow you know better because you think better. 
But God is very clear. He took the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. The only reason why I'm on the team is because I was the biggest fool. So we need to understand God made us to serve and we serve from the bottom up. Equipping others. But then also, I pray that we would leave here with boldness, knowing that what God has called us to, to make known through the church, no one can stop us, not even the devil. So let's go out in that kind of boldness and access, knowing that in the name of Jesus, every demon must flee. Every discouragement can't stay because of the access we now have to God's unsearchable riches. God, I pray that you would make this true. Help us to be reminded of the fact this is not a game and it's worth giving our life to. In Jesus' name, amen.